We've been in this series called Captivity, where we've been talking about the different captors that can come into our lives and steal away our hearts and our minds and draw us away from close fellowship with the Lord. And we want to talk about those captors uh, really today in the sense of how do we escape them and stay home with God where we are intended to be. Now, I may remind you of our gospel tree. We looked at this last week by way of review. If you guys put that up there for me, there we go. What often happens is that we begin to believe about God things that are false. We begin to believe things about what God has done that are false. We begin to believe things about who we are in Christ that are false. Now, we would say, no, I, I never believe things like that that are false. But the problem is, see, the fruit on our life would indicate, the fruit on the tree of our life would indicate, yeah, there's some false thinking, thought, false believing in our lives because we're not bearing good fruit. We're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And that's because we don't have a fruit problem. We have a root problem. Something is not right about what we are believing about God or about what God has done or about who we are in Him. And so what we're called to do then is the same thing we did when we entered into a relationship with God is this, repent and believe. Repent is to change our mind. I'm not going to continue to believe things about God or about what He has done or about who I am in God that are false. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to repent and believe what is true about God and what is true about what he has done for me at the cross and what is true about who I am in him. And when we are believing what is true, then the fruit on our life is going to be good fruit. The Bible may call that the, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 15, when you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And, and so I want to put our circles and stick man back up there from the last several weeks you may remember we tend to think of our relationship with God like this circle and the stick man next to it. The circle representing God, the stick man obviously us. That the whole Christian life is this constant, never-ending pursuit of trying to get closer to Jesus. Doing and doing and doing to try to get closer to Jesus. But when the reality is, the language of and the imagery of Scripture is not a relationship in which we're always trying to get closer. But the language and imagery of Scripture is that we are living in a life to, in, to be dwelling in, living in God, abiding in Jesus. Jesus says, when you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now, when we abide in Jesus, we're going to see life happen in four directions or life in 4D. Let's look at that. We have God, the one, direction one is God flowing into our lives. And we talked about that last week, that God directs his life into our life out of his word. And so we read God's word and we hear God's word and we study God's word and we memorize God's word and we meditate on God's word and we apply God's word. That's direction one, God to us. And let me remind you, we don't do those things so that we can dwell in Christ. We dwell in Christ the same way we came to be positioned in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's repenting and believing. Once you're dwelling then in Him, you are positioned to receive from God His Word, D1, all those ways we talked about. Today we want to talk about D2, which is how we commune with God. How our life connects to God and how our life flows toward God in communion with God. I think this is so important today because captors are trying to take our hearts away from, from uh, this fellowship with Jesus. But also today because a lot of us here at Grace Life, our hearts are grief stricken and our hearts are broken and our hearts are heavy. And we have a lot of questions and we 
just don't understand what God is doing right now. And I spent time yesterday, obviously, with the family. And I told Autumn, she's 16, I told Autumn, I said, I make a deal with you. We sat there on her, on her couch and said, I, I make a deal with you that I will be honest with you about how I'm feeling if you'll be honest with me about how you're feeling. And I said, Autumn, I got to be honest with you. Right now, I'm feeling sort of mad at God. And I know that may shock some of you to hear your pastor say that, but I've just known God long enough to know that he already knows my heart. So let's just go ahead and be real and be honest about it. And because I don't understand that. I don't understand why my friend from elementary school and another friend we went to elementary school with two weeks ago died in his sleep. I don't understand that. I don't understand why wives aren't waking up to husbands and kids aren't coming home to dads. So me and God have been having some pretty straight talks over the last couple of weeks about that. And I'm going to be honest about that. And, and some of you this morning... I don't know where you may be, but I know this. I know what God is going to say to us today out of his word. We need this. And so I hope that you're ready to absorb this and write this stuff down and do some digging in here with us today. Let's talk about D2, how we commune with God, us toward God. The person who is dwelling in God is going to increasingly do these four things we're going to talk about today. Number one, position yourself. Position yourself in solitude and surrender before God. Position yourself in solitude and surrender before God. Let's talk about solitude. Here's what solitude is. Solitude is withdrawing, withdrawing from all distractions. One of the captures we talked about in the first half of this sermon series was digital distractions. The antidote to that is solitude. Solitude is withdrawing from all distractions to be alone with God. Let's be straight. Most of us aren't good at positioning ourselves in solitude. In fact, we kind of act like we're allergic to it. We seem to avoid it and run from it and hide from it. Listen, your life is never going to be well connected to God if you don't learn to position yourself in solitude, to withdraw yourself from distractions, to be alone. I'm saying screens off. I'm saying sealed off, shut off quiet, silent, still before the Lord. How many of us today would say, I want to be more like Jesus? We, I do. I want to be more like Jesus, but I'll never be able to raise the dead. I, I haven't even met a leper. I'm not expecting to get to heal one. But in this way, I can be like Jesus because Jesus often positioned himself in solitude. The Bible said he did this consistently as the pattern of his life. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 says, but Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Listen, there's a lot of ways that you and I can't be like Jesus, but here's one area in scripture we can be like Jesus. We can learn to withdraw and be alone from everything else so that we can be in communion with our heavenly father. So that we can experience his presence and his glory in a time and a place of solitude. Listen, you need to know this. It is not healthy to always be where the action is. We're living in a world now that if we're not physically present where the action is, we at least want to be virtually present where all the action is. And it is not healthy to always be where the action is. And solitude, by the way, is not necessarily always a secluded place. 
Solitude is not always a quiet place, although I do think that is oftentimes the best. But sometimes solitude is in the middle of the storm. Sometimes solitude is in the middle of the noise. Sometimes solitude is more like the corner of the boxing ring. You've been in the middle of the ring and you have been getting your ears boxed off by all the adversity of life. But then you can withdraw to that corner for just a moment. The fight is still going on. Everything's still raging around you. But you get to sit for a moment in solitude and allow Jesus to refresh you. Allow Jesus to refocus you. Allow Jesus to instruct you for the next round that you're about to step into. Listen, we retreat into solitude. This, this is why in between three services, I scoot out quick to get to my office to sit down for just a moment. Not just to physically rest, but I want to sit in the corner for a moment because I want to retreat and I want to refresh. And I want to get more instruction from the Lord before I come back in here. Because here's what solitude does. Solitude positions you to be better when you come back from it. Better at loving God. And better at loving other people. And listen, we need moments of solitude every single day. You've got to, got to, got to, child of God, you've got to build solitude into your life. I want to emphasize that because I know we all stink at this, but you've got to do it. Set some alarms on your phone. Do something to build some solitude sort of moments into your daily life. Schedule it. Set an alarm. Fight for those moments in your life every day because they're going to help you be better at loving God and better at loving other people. And those quiet moments of solitude, here comes the second half of point number one. The second, the, 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 the results of that, those moments of solitude then position me to surrender. To submit myself fully before the Lord. To have clarity about who really is in control. Do you know who modeled this best? Again, it's Jesus. In Luke chapter 22 Verse 41, you think some of our hearts are heavy today. None of us have ever had a heart as heavy as Jesus' heart is heavy in Luke 22. He's going to the garden to spend some alone time with God before he goes to the cross and takes the weight of the world's sin on himself. Luke chapter 22, verse 41, the Bible says Jesus walked away about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed. What's he doing? He's in solitude, right? Solitude positions you to surrender. Verse 42, he says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. I'm not saying surrender is easy. I know it's not. I got to the George house yesterday morning just moments before the medics came out of the bedroom and broke the news. I got there and Janelle was on the couch and her dad and her stepmom were standing there. I just sat. My heart was racing. And her her dad said, will you pray for us, Pastor? And he picked a really lousy guy to pray because I could hardly get anything out. We did our best. But part of that prayer was, God, we're asking you to raise Chris up. We're asking you to put life in him because his wife needs him and his kids need him and I need him and our church needs him and God, we are not ready for this. But then I also said, but God, your ways are not our ways. 
And so if it is your will to, ca to carry him on home to be with you, let your will be done, not ours. I am telling you, it is not easy. You know that. You know that it is not easy to surrender to the will of God in your life. But I am telling you, it must happen because you cannot embrace your will and his will simultaneously. It can't be done. We yield ourselves to one and enter into one or the other, but we can't do both at the same time. Can I ask you which, which one usually wins the day in your life? Whose will gets devoted to? Whose will gets accepted and submitted to? When our hearts are surrendered and trusting God, then, then and only then are our desires going to begin to line up with God's desires. Then and only then is our joy going to be made full. So here's what I'm saying, Grace Life, this morning. Position yourself. Here's how we commune with God. God is communing to us from his word as we hear it and as we read it and as we study it and as we memorize it and as we meditate it and as we apply it. And then from that, we are communing back to him through positioning ourselves in solitude and surrender. And then number two, in worship. In worship, in spirit, and in truth. Worship is simply praising God for who He is. Praising God is praising Him for what He's done, what He's given. Jesus is having this conversation in John chapter 4, breaking societal norms, because He's kind of good at that. And in John chapter 4, He's sitting beside a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day at a well, and she says, verse 19, Sir, the woman said, You must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? And Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, hang with me. Real worship is spirit and truth. That means real worship is both objective and subjective. Objective and subjective. Real worship is objective because it is based on the unchanging, infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. True worship is grounded on objective truth, which is the word of God that's never going to change. But listen, if all of your worship, if all of it is, is simply merely assenting to biblical truth mentally, that's not true worship. That's not the kind of worship that Jesus said the Father is seeking. He desires worshipers who will worship in truth and in spirit. In other words, not only with our heads, but also with our hearts. Our hearts, that's the subjective part of worship. Understand that today, the way you and I may connect with God in worship may be different. Person to person. Not because God's word is different from person to person, but because today and the reality of today and the reality of the life that we just had this past week, our hearts are different. 
our hearts at coming to God today from different places, different perspectives, different experiences. Some of our hearts today are broken and grief and sorrow and some of our hearts today are elated they're on the mountaintop that's where we've been for the last week and the father desires that we be both people who worship in truth and in spirit not merely one or the other so the way our hearts are getting poured out to god today may look different some faces may be on the altar some hands may be stretched up to heaven as far as they'll go some may be expressed on their knees some may be expressed on their feet some may be expressed with smiles and laughter some may be expressed with grief and tears and sorrow some worship may be expressed by the way that you're loving the people around you i don't know what it's going to be but it's okay for your heart to be real And be honest, even if that honesty sounds like, God, I don't get you. And this doesn't seem fair. But listen, if we worship only with our emotions, that's a problem too. Because if worship is only spirit, then our feelings will be the focus of our worship, not God. And the Bible's clear. Our feelings will often fool us. Our feelings aren't trustworthy. They are not objective truth. This, God's word alone, is objective truth. Here's what true worship is. True worship is the spirit-led, beautiful blending, perfect blending together of the objective truth of God's word and the subjective place where my heart is right now. That's true worship. And it's important to know this, by the way, while a lot of things we'll talk about today, you can't multitask those things. Worship is a thing that's got to be multitasked. We've got to be worshiping all the time, no matter the circumstances, no matter the task at hand. Worship doesn't turn on and off. The moment you were born again, you were regenerated, worship turned on, and it's to never turn off. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, So whether you eat or drink, I mean, how mundane is that? Or whatever you do, there's a big umbrella term, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is what worship is. It is my Mind's attention objectively from God's word, my heart's affection subjectively out of my heart, staying focused on God. So sometimes my worship looks like being here in this room with you all. But listen, if that's the only way you're worshiping God, you you are missing out. That's the kindest thing I can think to say to you in this moment. But you're missing out. Worship is supposed to be happening constantly, never turning it off. Worship may look driving here this morning, and I can assure you, I desperately needed to be worshiping God on the drive this morning. Worshiping God looks like what I did this morning when I stopped and I got gas and filled my car up with gas. With rising gas prices, we especially need to be worshiping God at the pump and praising Him that He is good and He is faithful and He is a provider. He not only provides petroleum for my car to take me where it needs to be, but most of all, He has provided His precious Son that I might have life in His name. Sometimes worship looks like back and forth, back and forth, cutting the grass like I did Friday afternoon. But worship is to never, ever stop. Don't ever Turn your worship off ever. Listen, the person who dwells in God increasingly positions in solitude and surrender. 
and then worships in spirit and in truth. And then they, number three, they pray, they wait, they watch, and they fast. I know, you're looking at me like, hey, you just put four points in one. I know. And you'll know why in a minute. The person who's dwelling in, and i got to remind you, let me say this again. We don't do these things to dwell in him. The person who dwells in him does these things. You say, how do I dwell in him? You repent from believing what's not true about God and who he is and what he's done and who you are in him. And believe what is true about him and what he's done and who you are in Christ so that you bear fruit, so that you abide in him. Then life happens in 4D. i got to keep saying that because I don't want you to go, oh, checklist time. This will help Jesus love me more. He can't love you more. That's called grace. And he'll never love you less. I don't want to lose sight of that. So the person who's dwelling in Jesus, they pray, they wait, they watch, and they fast by faith. What is prayer? We talked last week about how God, out of his word, communicates to us. Well, this is how we get to communicate to God. It's prayer. And by the way, like worshiping, prayer is never supposed to stop either. Prayer and worship, they're just woven together, and there's no off switch. We act like there is, but there's really not. It's not what God has put in us. Never stop praying. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, always be joyful. Well, how do you do that? Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. We talk a lot about anxiety in our culture today, and we should. It's a real thing. A lot of the reason it's real is because none of us are living the kind of life that God created us to live. We weren't supposed to live a 24-7, always on, in front of a blue light, always running, always going, eating stuff made in factories all the time, popping pills. We're way away from the way I think God has intended for us to live. And a lot of the harmful consequences of that are seen in just the things we struggle with in our everyday life. And anxiety is real, I know that. But you know what the antidote to anxiety is? Here's what Paul says, Philippians chapter 4. And by the way, you go, what's he know about anxiety? Well, he's been beaten to a bloody pulp and he's sitting in a prison. And he says, don't worry about anything. (laughs) Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Here's another. Peter even gets in on the action. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Peter knew a little something about anxiety. He knew, he knew how to have a freak out. He could do it pretty good. But by the time he's writing 1 Peter, he's growing in the Lord. And by the way, you're growing in the Lord too. You may not feel like it some days, but you are. Not because you're doing it right, but because God is. He's going to finish what he started. He who began a good work is going to be faithful to complete it. So hang in there. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter says, give, that word actually means to let them roll off or throw them off. The picture there is you got this big heavy backpack on your back and you're just going to shed it onto somebody else and let them carry it for a while. He says, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Listen, sometimes our prayers are going to be for ourselves. They should be. You better pray for you because nobody else may be. Pray for yourself. And sometimes we're going to be praying that God will provide something for us. 
Sometimes we're going to be praying that God will give us wisdom. God, I'm not sure what you'd have me to do here. I don't understand. I'm in over my head. I'm asking you, God, for wisdom because your word says you'll give it. Sometimes, a lot of times, our prayers for ourselves are about forgiveness, right? But then sometimes we're praying for other people. We're interceding for somebody else. Janelle and her children were in that 8 o'clock service, and before that service got off the ground, the whole church, beautiful. Guys, you guys on live stream, I'm glad you're on live stream, but i got to tell you, live stream is not church. I understand if you're sick, your life's in danger, I get it. But some of you should be here. That's all I'm going to say. The 8 o'clock service, they gathered around Janelle and her children. And they interceded for her. Laid hands on her. Extended hands toward them. Prayed for them. We do that. We pray for other people. We pray for their health. We pray for their comfort. Right? We pray for their salvation. Some of you are praying for your children to know Jesus. Or your grandchildren to know Jesus. Or a friend, a co-worker. We're praying for salvation. But the bottom line of prayer is this. When we dwell in Christ, we're not merely praying to get stuff. We're praying to get more of God. We want more of God manifested in our life. True prayer is aimed at more of God. That God would be magnified in my life. That there would be more of God seen in my life. That there would be more of God experienced in my life, in my body, in my mind, in my soul. That there would be more of God experienced in my family. And more of God experienced in my friends. And more of God experienced in my church. And that today there would be more of God that Janelle would experience. And more of God that Autumn and Silas would experience in their lives. It's more of God that we're praying for. And sometimes we're standing there praying that more of God would be revealed in a person's healing. Or that more of God would be revealed in God providing something in our life. That there would be more of God revealed in this happening this way. But there's also, because we are positioning ourselves in solitude and surrender, a desire to say, but God, if you don't manifest yourself in your healing, we just want more of you. However you choose to write the story, however you choose to answer the prayer, it's fine as long as the end result is there's more of you. See, I think a lot more of our prayers have been answered through the years had we realized that true prayer isn't praying that we get everything we want, but that what we want gets transformed into wanting what is best, which is God himself. And so the end goal of everything we pray for is more of God in our life. And we shouldn't, by the way, just pray that and then scurry on about our business and forget about it. That brings me to the second part of that same point. We want to pray and then we want to wait. We want to wait on the Lord. The Bible speaks to this often throughout Scripture. Here's what waiting is. You may want to write this down. Waiting is confident. Confident expectation. Waiting on the Lord is confident expectation and anticipation that God is going to act. That's what waiting on the Lord is. It's confident expectation and anticipation that God is going to act. Waiting is hoping, hoping, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 27, 13, look at this. 
The psalmist says, yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Confidently, expectantly, waiting, believing, trusting, hoping in the Lord. Psalm 5.3, listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I bring my request to you and then I don't leave and scurry around and wonder why you never answered my prayer. No, I'm going to wait. I bring my request to you and I wait expectantly. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 40 about those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength. There's fresh trust, fresh confidence, fresh hoping in the Lord. What are we waiting for? It's a trick question. It's not what are we waiting for, it's whom are we waiting for. We are waiting for Jesus to be revealed in this prayer that I've prayed. It may be that he is revealed in the healing or he's revealed in calling my brother home. It may be revealed that he is in providing this bill for me or he is being revealed and giving me wisdom to know how not to get behind next time. I'm waiting on him to reveal more of himself to me. Waiting for God. For God to be manifested in keeping promises. For God to be manifested in healing. For God to be manifested in providing. For God to be manifested in forgiving. For God to be manifested in providing justice. For God to be manifested, most of all, in telling his son to come back and take us home. The ultimate revealing, the revelation of Jesus. We pray for more of God. And then we wait for more of God to be revealed. And then we watch on that same point, because these go together. Pray, wait, and watch. Then we watch for more of God to be revealed. Watching is how we're active in our waiting. You can wait, but not be active. You can wait without watching. But you know what that says? You're not expecting God. You're not anticipating God. For example, David Patterson was sitting back here in the 8 o'clock service. And every year he invites me graciously to come hang out with him at his hunting property. And there's this shooting house that's kind of become my favorite down there. I killed a seven point out of that shooting house this year. A little side brag. But here's what I didn't do in that shooting house. I didn't get in that shooting house and go, all right, well, I'm going to sleep now. I'm waiting on a deer, so I'm going to take a nap. I'm waiting on a deer, so I'm going to watch YouTube videos. No, that's not, that's not what you do. See, I've been in that shooting house before. I've killed deer out of that shooting house before. I know that good things happen when I keep my eyes open in that shooting house. I'm telling you today, I know good things happen when I keep my eyes open on the Lord because he has been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the present. And he will be faithful in the future. And so I'm going to pray. And I'm going to wait. And I'm going to watch. Again, is it possible that God has answered a whole lot more of our prayers than we realize? Someone's going, God, he never answered my prayer. No one. Were you watching? And were you wanting him to do it like you wanted it? Or were you wanting more of him? We pray and we wait. And we watch. Watching is active waiting. And that's how God wants us to pray. Like we really believe it. Like we're really expecting God that, that he's going to show up. That he's going to show out because he really loves us. 
I remember when my children were little. We're past this now, unfortunately. But when they were little, I would get home and I'd see their little faces smudging up the window, excited, looking, expecting, watching for dad to come home. And my heart just, whoa, that's big time, man. I take one more day of that. All you dads that know what I'm talking about, we take one more day of that. And I'm telling you, our Heavenly Father delights in when we pray and we wait and we watch. Not distracting ourselves with something while we wait. No, you wait, you watch, you get your head up, you get your eyes open, you get your head on a swivel because God's on the move. Jesus said in Luke 21, 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. What are we saying? We're saying we got to pray for God, more of God to be revealed and wait for him and watch for him. And then we may express our desire for more of God to be revealed, not only in praying and waiting and watching, but also through fasting. Through fasting. Let's talk about fasting. Here's the definition of fasting. Fasting is abstaining from food for spiritual benefit. Abstaining from food for spiritual benefit. Now I hear people say, well, I'm abstaining from social media. I'm, I'm fasting from social media. That's cool. That's good. That's helpful. But that's not biblical fasting. I'm, I'm fasting from television. That's a really good thing to do. And you can call it that. I get that. I have no problem with that. I won't argue with you about that. But that's not biblical fasting. I just want you to understand that's not biblical fasting. Biblical fasting is abstaining from food for spiritual benefit. We find that practice in both the Old and the New Testament of God's Word. And that when we practice biblical fasting the way God has prescribed it to be practiced, it has tremendous spiritual benefits. God uses this, and I'll explain how in a moment. But I believe that our failure to fast is one of the reasons that we aren't experiencing the Lord in our life more. That we're not experiencing the victorious Christian life as God would want us to. It's one of the reasons that we're not seeing more of God and His glory and His presence and His power in our life. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is preaching what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, He says, and when you pray, when you pray, He doesn't say if you pray. He assumes that saved saints, his disciples, are going to be people who pray. He says, when you pray, and then he gives instructions about how. But then a few lines later, he treats fasting the same way. He says, when you fast. He doesn't say if you fast. His assumption is that followers of Jesus are going to fast. So he says, when you fast, and he begins to give some instructions on fasting. Listen, Jesus expects his people to both pray and fast. He puts them both on the same shelf together. There's not like minor league Christianity and major league Christianity. Fasting is not like for the spiritual elite. It's for all of us. And Jesus puts them right there on the shelf beside each other. Now you may be wondering, what is fasting for? Because I've never done that. I've heard about it. I don't know about it. I'm inexperienced with it. So why do you do that, Pastor? Is it to make you so miserable that you pray more? No. That's not the point. That's not the purpose at all. You might think there's a number of reasons for it. Those would probably be legitimate. But there's really only one primary reason 
that God's people are to be fasters. And here it is. You may want to write this down so you'll know from now on. Fasting is God's appointed way for his children to humble themselves. Fasting is God's appointed way for his children to humble ourselves. Here's why this is important. If we are praying for God to be revealed, we are waiting for God to be revealed. We are watching for God to be revealed. But there is pride in our hearts. He is not going to be revealed. Here's what the Bible says. It tells us God does not draw near to the prideful. He does not draw near to the proud. James, the half-brother of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 6, says, And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud. You cannot be dwelling practically, positionally, as a child of God, yes, we're not going to lose salvation positionally in Christ. Nothing's going to take you out of that position. But practically, in terms of your fellowship with him, you cannot dwell in him and pride dwell in you. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, so humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When you Humble yourself, the devil runs away from you, and God runs to you. Let me me say this, not in my notes, but let me say this. Fasting will either humble you, or it will inflame your pride. It is intended by God to humble you. But if you fast in the flesh, you're going to be an even prouder son of a gun than you were before you started fasting. you got to be warned about that. You've got to hear about that. We, we can't fast in this sort of way that says, well, minor leaguers, they pray, and major leaguers, we fast, and I'm fasting, so I'm major league. Hey, Brandon, did you know I'm fasting? I'm fasting. I just want you to know I'm fasting. If you've got any you know, questions about fasting, I'm your go-to guy, because fasting is what God uses to humble me, and I'm probably the most humble guy you know, I'd bet, right? You see how... The enemy would love to take what God has intended to cultivate humility in our lives. He loves to take it and twist it and do just the opposite with it. He is the antichrist, right? He will do everything the opposite. And so when we enter into fasting, we must do so with great care and with great caution. Because God intends for that to humble us. The enemy intends for that to inflate us. But maybe the reason our praying and waiting and watching is oftentimes ineffective is because there's pride still yet in our... God, why are you doing this? Because you owe me. God, why didn't you answer this prayer? Because I've been going to church. Even in a pandemic, I go to church. I've risked dying for you, God. Why didn't you do this, God? You know what that is? That's entitlement, right? That's pride. That somehow, God, if I do, you owe me, not God, you have done it all. You owe me nothing. You saved a wretch like me. The single greatest barrier that keeps many of our prayers from being answered and the single greatest barrier that keeps us from experiencing the glory and the power of Jesus in our lives 
is pride. Pride repels the presence of God. God will not answer the prayers of the proud. God will not pour out his glory and his power on the proud. God will not do that. Pride keeps us back from all the blessings that God intends for us. This message is all, all throughout the Bible, but you know what? God is so good. He has given his children a tool to deflate our pride. It's like sticking a needle in it. And that tool is fasting so that we can walk humbly with God, so we can know his presence and his power and his glory in our lives up close so that our prayers and our waiting and our watching are effective. We get more of God. This is why the psalmist says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desire of your heart. If you're delighting yourself in the Lord, he is the desire of your heart. So he's going to give you more of him. Ha, ha, I know that's not how you've heard that preached, but I just gave you the truth. It's not if you love Jesus, you can ask him for anything and you're going to get it. If you love Jesus, you can ask him for more of Jesus and you get more of Jesus. Because can we just be honest? Jesus is better than any healing. Does he heal? Yeah. But sometimes he gives us even better than that. He's given us this tool of fasting to deflate our pride so that our prayers are powerful and effective. Humbling yourself before the Lord and fasting are like PB and J. They go together. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what David said in Psalm 35. I humbled my soul with fasting. God's people understood in the scripture when God called his people to humble themselves, that was fasting was involved in that. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves. It's funny to me, every time a Democrat goes in office, Baptists claim that scripture, but Baptists don't fast. Humbling ourselves and fasting, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. Now, why do you need to humble your soul? Because I don't know if you figured this out, but your soul is really into you. Your soul really digs you. Your soul likes to think about you. Your soul likes to talk about you. Your soul likes to show you off to other people. Your soul likes to pet you and brag on you. and pat. Your soul is all wrapped up in you. It's the most self-centered part of us. And our souls are either under the control of the Spirit of God or they're under the control of our flesh. Those two powers are both at work in us at all the time. And one of the most effective ways to drive your soul away from the flesh is through fasting. Drive your soul away from, from what is most physical. And the most basic physical thing in the world is food. Push your soul away from what is most basic and physical in this world so that you can drive your soul to find satisfaction in Christ alone. Are you with me? And my true satisfaction, my greatest joy is not in the flesh, but it is in Christ and in Christ alone. Fasting is the tool that God has given his people so that they can humble themselves and be positioned to experience his presence and his power and his glory. And the Bible is filled with stories and events where... Major events in history pivoted when God's people humbled themselves, a.k.a. fasting, praying, waiting, watching, 
before the Lord. When God's people do that, God, God shows up. God shows up. What's the goal of our fasting? It's the same goal of our praying. More God. More of God. Why do you think he would just keep giving you more toys that distract you even more from God? Why are you praying for more stuff that's just at the end of the day going to take you further from him? Maybe that's why he's not giving you what you want. You're wanting the wrong thing. Your desires are not too great. They're too little. You're too easily satisfied. Want more. Want him. Matthew 9, 14, Jesus gives incredible clarity about fasting here. One day, the disciples of John the Baptist came to him, and they asked him, Why don't your disciples fast like we do? And the Pharisees do. Jesus' disciples weren't, weren't fasting. All the religious folks, they were fasting. The religious folks were thrown off. How come your disciples aren't fasting? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Is, is the bride and the groom not going to eat at their own reception? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast. Here's Jesus' point. My disciples aren't fasting right now because I couldn't be any more with them than I am with them. I mean, we fish together. And we walk together. We go everywhere together. We sit around the fire at night together. I could not be any more with them than I am with them. But the day will come that I am not with them like I am with them now. And their hearts will long for me. And then they will fast. What are they fasting for? More of God. Not more toys. More of God. We fast now because we want more of Jesus. But one day, praise God, we'll be where Chris is. We'll be with Jesus. And we couldn't have any more of Jesus on that day than we will have of Jesus on that day. And we will never, ever fast again because we'll never be apart from him again. We will forever, for all of eternity, live in the fullness of his presence and his glory. Fasting is for now. Feasting is for then. So what are we saying? How does the life of a person who's dwelling in Jesus flow to God? We position ourselves. Listen, y'all, this is Christianity 101. Please, we got to take this in. God is doing something in our hearts. He's doing something in our lives, in our church. He is calling us so close. Listen, this is how. From his word to us, D1, now D2, I position myself now. From the riches of his word, I position myself in solitude and surrender. Not my will but your will be done. And then I worship. And I'm worshiping him in spirit and truth. I'm being honest out of my heart, but I'm grounding that on the unchanging word of God. And then I'm praying, and I'm waiting, and I'm watching. And fasting. And then number four, I rest. I rest in the peace of God. The word for peace in the Hebrew is shalom. It means more than the absence of conflict. In fact, it means conflict is present, but I'm still at peace. 
There's wholeness. Despite the circumstances around me, despite what conflicts may be around me, despite what adversity may, may be around me, there is wholeness and a sense of being complete and at rest in the depths of who I am in the midst of that. That's shalom. A great illustration of that is the shalom of Jesus when he's asleep down in the bottom of the boat in the middle of a storm, and Jesus is in perfect shalom. It's not the absence of conflict. It's not the absence of adversity. Jesus didn't promise to give you that kind of shalom, did he? You get the peace of God, but it's not peace without adversity. It's not peace without conflict. But he promised to give shalom. He promised to give you peace in the conflict. Peace in the storm. The ability to find deep soul rest in the bottom of the boat when seasoned and skilled sailors are on the deck running around like their hair is on fire. When everybody's saying, we're going to perish. You're at rest. In God. So I got to Chris and Janelle's yesterday morning. Let me tell you, man, when your pastor receives a text that says, he didn't wake up, I've been given CPR, we're waiting on the ambulance. You go fast. The gracious state trooper understood my plight. And I got into the living room just a few minutes before they came out of the room and pronounced him. And I think I might have already told you this. You know, I've already had one service today, so my mind's mushy. Janelle's dad asked me to pray, and I prayed as best I could. And then they came out and they pronounced him. So some time went by, and they... Let Janelle go back there. I gave her some time alone. Then I went in the room to join her, me and her dad. And she's sitting by, not Chris, because Chris was with the Lord, by the way. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. That was just the old tent that Chris had lived in for a little while. Sometime in the night, God folded that tent up and called Chris home. But she's sitting by that folded up tent. That her, her husband had lived in. And you can imagine what that was like. And then her dad squeezed by and he went and he sat down beside her. And then he prayed the prayer of the day. It wasn't my prayer that I will remember. I got to stand there in that moment and listen to this daddy Pray over his daughter. And he prayed the word of God over her. He prayed a chapter out of the Bible that I had already, earlier in the week, copy and pasted into my notes. The very same chapter that I had planned to end this sermon today, before I knew any of this would happen, I stood there in that moment, hearing this man pray these words over his daughter he prayed the shalom of God over her which is best 
seen in the 23rd Psalm. And he prayed these words, the Lord is our shepherd. We have all we need. He lets us rest in green meadows. He leads us beside peaceful streams. He renews our strength. He guides us along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when we walk through the darkest valley, we will not be afraid. For you're close beside us. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort us. You prepare a feast for us in the presence of our enemies. You honor us by anointing our heads with oil. Our cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue us all the days of our lives. And we will live in the house of the Lord forever. That is an indweller in Jesus. Communing with God. With a category five hurricane swirling around his little girl. He brought the shalom of God. Into the room. That rest is a picture of. Peace and submission and surrender and trust and confidence and hope in God when all hell is breaking loose around you. By the way, that kind of rest and confidence and hope in the Lord annihilates legalism. That says, oh, I got to do and do and do. No, it just sits there and says, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. You're the great I am, and I'm the great I am not. And that kind of shalom not only annihilates legalism, but it annihilates pride. Because we sit there in that peace with nothing to bring, but simply to the cross to cling. What are we saying? Our hearts are going to commune with God, grace, life. This is what walking with Jesus looks like. It is positioning yourself in solitude. To surrender. To worship in spirit and truth. To pray and to wait and to watch and to fast and to rest. In the goodness, the unchanging faithfulness of God. I want to invite you to bow with me as you sit. And here's what I want to ask you to do. We're going to practice communing with God today. We're having lecture and lab today, class. I want you just to draw a circle around yourself right now. And it's just you and God. You just create a place of solitude right now in that chair with you, you alone with the Lord. Withdraw yourself right now unto the Lord in that circle.
sometimes in solitude I do this thing, I call it prayer breathing, it's kind of weird maybe, but I just breathe in a phrase and breathe out a phrase like this, I will dwell with you forever. I don't want to be just silent in my solitude. I don't want my thoughts to crowd out the silence and the solitude. I want God's word. This is where meditating on God's word from last week comes in. It comes into your solitude. Meditating on God's word in that solitude. You are for me, not against me. Faithful and just. To forgive. Solitude. And then surrender. I know this is not easy. I know some of you have some things in your life that to say, God, not my will, but your will be done is terrifying. It is terrifying for a wife as a husband down the hall, surrounded by medics, to pray. Not my will, God, but your will be done. I get it, it's hard. But right now, would you, in that moment, that position of solitude, surrender. Follow the example of Jesus with the weight of the world sent on him who said, not my will, but your will. Be done. your the back of your hands on top of your knees with your palms facing heaven God I surrender your will not mine your will not mine